every 10 years, life expectancy increases by two years. You're likely to live to 100. And at the same time, technology is changing in a way that's unpredictable. Welcome to Insight Edge. My name's Kirsten Lees. This month, we've got four episodes for you all about careers and leadership. We kick off with Linda Grattan, author of 100 Year Life and founder of the Future of Work Consortium. When you have a multi-stage life where each one of us is building our own lives, it means that each one of us builds a unique path. On what the collision of longevity, technology and mobility mean to organisations, leaders and most importantly, people like you and me. In our next episode, we talk to four of our future leaders about what 70 years in the workforce look like to them. The game is really being able to adapt to the changing and evolving business environment. Hi, I'm Kirsten Lees, host of Insight Edge, a podcast about leadership for the Australian Institute of Management. So, we're set to live for 100 years and we're not at all prepared for it, as individuals or as businesses. Linda Grattan, London Business School professor and founder of the Future of Work Consortium, talked to Insight Edge about her research with co-author Andrew Scott on a book recently out, The 100 Year Life. I asked Linda, what do we need to think about to have a happy, prosperous and productive 100 years? Well, thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. Um, I, I think the question of the collision of technology and longevity is a really interesting question. And, and here's why. I mean, imagine you're a 20-year-old in Australia right now and looking forward. There are a number of, uh, you know, trends that are shaping your life. Uh, the first one, the longevity one, which we've written about in our new book, simply states that every 10 years, life expectancy increases by two years. Just think about that for a moment. Every 10 years, life expectancy increases by two years. And that means you're likely to live to 100. Uh, and at the same time, uh, technology is changing in a way that's unpredictable. If you live to 100, unless you're saving, let's say, 25% of your income, and I suspect most of us aren't, then you're really thinking about working into your 60s, 70s, possibly even 80s. And that means that over a long period of time, you're seeing a lot of technological changes. Now, some of those are predictable. So, for example, I and others are looking at the speed of artificial intelligence and robotics. And what we're seeing right now is a phenomenon called the hollowing out of work. And what that means is middle skill jobs tend to be the ones that are disappearing. Um, and what's left are highly skilled jobs where artificial intelligence augments you and low skilled jobs where actually they're too, uh, they're difficult to either augment and or for robots to do. Now, what does that mean for you in terms of those collisions of technology and longevity? Well, what it means is that whilst we know the direction of travel in terms of, of the technology and work, what we don't really know is the velocity. Uh, we really don't know how fast this stuff is happening. We wouldn't have predicted, I don't think, how fast Uber, which is really essentially a technology platform, has completely transformed the way most of us move around, uh, you know, around in, in cities. And so what does that mean for you? Well, what that means for you is that you need to uh, both internally be flexible in terms of your skills and be prepared to 
uh, relearn, reskill right through your life. And secondly, you need to keep an eye out on how trends are shaping up. And you need to take uh, take a view of the sort of skills you think are going to be important for the future and those that are going to become less important as we see technology advancing. What about organisations? How do they prepare to have the right workforce and and to to keep people on board if they're working till they're 70 and even 80? Well, there's no doubt that there's a massive transformation happening right now. I've been directing and founded the Future of Work Consortium, and we have a number of Australian uh, companies part of it, and, and companies from all around the world are part of that. And that really helps organisations think about the future. But I think one of the challenges that we face is that most of the way we see work done comes out of the Industrial Revolution. You know, that was a time when work moved from being craft-based, home-based, field-based, into factories, into offices, into nine-to-five working. And, and it's taking organizations a long time to get past that. So the post-industrial way of working is only just beginning to emerge. You know, where work would be more flexible, potentially more episodic, potentially uh, more, you know, more giving people more opportunities to do other things in their lives. Because one thing is clear, if, you, if you're working until you're 60 or 70 or 80, your three-stage life of full-time education, full-time work, full-time retirement moves into a multi-stage life. And multi-stage lives basically mean that people are coming in and out of organizations right the way through their lives, not just when they're 20. And so there's a huge agenda for organizations. And actually in the book, we devote the final chapter to really think about that. And I think the real important thing that for, for corporations is right now, they have to ditch the idea that people will all want to leave at 60. They've really got to think about how do we employ people longer. Right now, they've got to realize that some of the most talented people will want to join them, not when they're 20, but maybe when they're 40. Right now, they've got to think about more flexible ways of working, including, you know, giving people time off during the week to learn, but also the idea of sabbaticals where they can go away and do something significant and then come back. So those are the three things, three ideas that I think corporations should be experimenting with. And indeed, some in Australia are already doing that. You talk about the end of lockstep. Can you explain what lockstep is? Yes. You know, one of the marvellous things about the three-stage life, full-time education, full-time work, full-time retirement, is that everybody goes through each of those uh, stages at exactly the same time. So you could just imagine an army in lockstep. You know, if you're 20, you're moving into a company. If you're 22, you're moving into your first assistant role. Uh, if you're 30, then you're beginning to do something else. And that lockstep made managing people easy because you just had to look at their age and you could work out their stage. But when you have a multi-stage life where people, each one of us, is building our own lives, it means that each one of us builds a unique path. And that means that we're not all going to be moving in the same direction at the same velocity. And so organizations need to think more about their employees as individuals rather than in terms of age cohorts. Uh, and I think that's a very important thing to do. I would like 
organisations to be age agnostic. We'd like, though, not to use age as the major way of defining people. Are there companies that you see now doing that well? Um, you see quite a lot of experiments going on. And here in, in, in Australia, KPMG, for example, are doing some really interesting and exciting work in terms of flexible working practices, uh, which I think is really, really a cornerstone of, of long lives. That, that's certainly happening. You know, organisations are beginning to think about how do we employ people over 60. So I think you'll see more and more experiments taking place. And of course, over time, those experiments then become corporate practice. Do we need a new kind of leader? Well, I think that's a really good question, and it's certainly one that I've been pondering over. Um, the answer must be yes, mustn't it? The answer, and I think particularly here, technology plays a role, because the interesting thing about technology from the perspective of a corporation is it joins everybody up and it makes information available to everyone. And, you know, one of the reasons why hierarchies became such a dominant way of managing companies is that information was important and precious. It started off from the top and it trickled through management layers. But let's imagine everybody in the corporation has access to all information. What then becomes the role of the leader? Certainly it's not to tell everybody what to do, but I don't think it makes leadership any less important. But it's really more about the leader as the narrator, you know, the leader as the person who shows how the future could be, the person who leads, who leads forward in terms of their own desires and beliefs. You mentioned earlier that I was a member of the World Economic Forum and I chaired for some years their Council on the Future of Leadership. And what we came up to with there was this idea that leadership both had an external component and an internal component. And the external component was how the leader really thinks about their world, you know, thinks about stakeholders, thinks about the challenges that we face in the world. And the internal component was their inner inner, inner path, you know, how they learnt about themselves. Because one thing is very clear, and that's that leadership is increasingly about authenticity. It's very difficult to role play being somebody when people are taking photographs of you or tweeting about you all the time. You can only really be yourself. And that requires quite a lot of personal development to be able to do that. One of the interesting things about leadership development is that leaders learn a great deal from each other. We're very interested in the ones who are moving the fastest. So if you look at, for example, the leader of Unilever right now, Paul Polman, you can see a man who is doing many of the things that we think is important to be future orientated. You know, he's building a narrative about how Unilever works in the world. He's talking about climate change, which is one of his personal passions. Uh, he's addressing the share stakeholders in the very widest of ways. He's talking to his shareholders in a way that encourages them to think in the long term. So you can see that these examples, these role models are very, very important. When everybody's moving in the same stage and is a similar um, similar profile, you can respond in a formulaic way, perhaps. But I guess if people are dipping in and out of work, you you have to customise your response. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. That's a very good point because um, one of the reasons why lockstep was such a good 
thing for organizations is it, in a sense, created procedural justice. And what I mean by that is that you treated everybody the same, because basically you said, if you're this age, then we assume that this is what you're like, therefore we're going to treat you the same. But what's happening in companies right now is that there's there's quite um, th there's beginning to be quite a lot of friction between what individuals want and what corporations want. Let, take, for example, paternity leave. You know, quite a lot of young men, and we see this from our data, would like to spend more time with their kids. But what we know from the research on maternity leave is that when women leave the organization to have kids and come back, their careers suffer. The data is very clear. So when a man does that, then that's really going to be a problem. So you can see men pushing back. And so organizations begin to make individual choices. Okay, you're talented, so you can do this. You're not so talented, so you can't. And eventually, that level of customization creates procedural injustice. Why is this person being treated differently from me? And so what you have to fall back on, exactly your point, is you have to fall back on your vision of what sort of thing, what you are as a company, i.e. your authenticity. And by the way, you also have to fall back on performance management. Uh, and by that, I don't mean the sort of cla awful classic performance management of that one hour a year when people do those dreadful ratings. I mean actually talking to people about their performance in the moment. I'm very interested in creative industries because if you look at an opera, I think it's one of the most complex organizational forms. You know, every night a whole bunch of incredibly creative people have to synchronize themselves with the whole audience watching them. People have been trained from the moment they became musicians to, 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 to get feedback, to, to accept feedback, to prepare for feedback. And also there's the phenomena of the rehearsal room. And in its a sense, what the sense there is, what happens in a rehearsal room stays there. You know, it's it's a place where all of us can experiment. And and I've been pondering about why organisations don't think more about how they deal with feedback and how they deal with this concept of rehearsal. You know, one of the problems I think as people move into more senior positions is that they surround themselves with people who don't give them feedback. And some of the most colossal mistakes you see in CEOs is because nobody tells them the truth. When we wrote the 100-year book, one of the, one of the ways we thought we would influence people is through a website. So if you go to our website, www.100yearlife.com, you'll see in there there's a diagnostic which you can take that helps you to see how prepared you are to live a 100-year life. Many, many thousands of people from all over the world have taken that diagnostic. So that's one way that we hope to influence people at the level of the individual as well as at the level of the, the corporation. Next week, we take up Linda's challenge. Imagine you're a 20-year-old in Australia right now. We talk to four potential and emerging leaders at the beginning of their career journey about what working for 70 years looks like from where they stand and what leadership itself means to them. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe to be the first to listen to future episodes and to catch up on some of the other podcasts we've done, including interviews with Leanne Kemp, startup entrepreneur, Mike Hanley, head of digital from the World Economic Forum, David Hall, Qantas executive and Jetstar CEO, Louise Robinson, CEO of the Nambucca Heads at Local Aboriginal Land Council, Alex Christie from Lendlease, Peter Hall, the founder of Hunter Hall, and Wendy Johnston, Salesforce Vice President of Marketing for the Asia Pacific. This has been another episode of Inside Edge with me, Kirsten Lees. You can read more about leadership from the Australian Institute of Management at leadershipmatters.com.au. Let us know what you think by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and leaving us a review or get in touch via email research at aim.com.au. My name's Kirsten Lees.